As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my good friend? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm coming off a uh, some type of respiratory infection or something like that. So my voice, I think it's back to normal right now, but it might sound a little differently. I might sound a little nasally, like I have asthma or something. <laughs> well, for first-time listeners, they won't know the difference, but I think you sound fine. Yeah, I think for what I'm it's good. worth. But how's it going, brother? How are you? You know, just hanging in as usual. Um, just trying to figure out if we've hit the, uh, you know, the event horizon for AI taking over the world, or you know, if aliens are a thing because we've been shooting them down left and right over our skies. Like, I don't know. It's a lot of interesting things happening right now, and. Let's just say I'm glad that we have something to distract us, uh, a.k.a. our podcast, because <laughs> otherwise... <laughs> well, the funny thing worried. is, this podcast is entirely recorded by AI. Yeah. So... <laughs> We're not even real. The secret is, is that Danny and I are both the origins of uh, chat GPT. <laughs> we are the Genesis. We are the... Um, what's in the in the show Westworld? What was the mm-hmm. main character's name? The... The one of the, the lead scientist was it Harold oh, Oswald? Um, uh, it was. Um, oh, this is gonna kill me! Yeah, now we gotta Google this. Now I can't let this go because Anthony Hopkins keeps on saying his name over and over again, and I Arnold 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 this is Arnold That's right? It. Yeah, it's definitely we're we are Arnold Arnold. <laughs> and um, what was the girl's name? Was it Luann? Dorothy? Man, was it Dorothy? Is... No. West. Man, I forget. They they pulled it off the HBO, and now I don't know shit West about it World anymore. World cast. Man, I I'm sorry for this, but this is just things that we cannot. Dolores. 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 <laughs> no, yeah. it's not Arnold. We're both wrong. It's Bernard. Bernard. No, Arnold. Arnold was the uh, was the person that Bernard was modeled after. Oh. Right. Okay. He's the guy that. He's the guy that the old dude was trying to chase down the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? I gotcha. Now it's all coming back to me. Now now the yeah. whole story is coming back to me right now. It's been a while since they I've seen that. They they that show is fucking phenomenal and they canceled it and then they pulled it off of HBO and now it's gonna be on some like third party streaming service somewhere. Hmm. I wonder weird. why. When when that sh- when that show first came out, what, seven years ago? It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Everyone yeah. was talking about that. It was like, yo, have you seen yeah. Westworld? It was like the thing that came out in between Game of Thrones seasons, you know? Yeah, that was it. That was the, um, it was the, the guy who played that weird twin in, uh, 
in uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia is is the the man in the thin black. I don't want to do a spoiler, but whatever, I'll spoil it. The thin the man in the black hat mm-hmm. ends up being the the the, the was the McNulty twin yep. from from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yep. Sorry. Sorry if you haven't watched it yet, and I spoiled that for you. But it's been years. <laughs> it's been it's been years. You, there's yeah. only there's a certain time limit. Uh, but yeah, the, going back to our original point, we don't care about spoilers because we're API or API. We're, we're just AI. We're not API. <laughs> we're AI. We're artificial. We're such good AI that we're, we're bad we're, at we're, talking about AI. <laughs> we're a language processing unit recording a podcast about history, and we just typed in the command "casual." podcast by two uneducated men in their early 30s and yep. this the script just came out and we typed a topic in at the same time and then right. this this entire episode just starts to record it's, it's right. crazy and this technology right. has been around since we've been recording this so yep for about you know, we're not existing yeah. we don't we don't have human forms nope. i don't i doubt any of you have met us in person i doubt nope. any of you have, have actually met us in person Mm-hmm. Uh, we are indeed just uh, computer language programs. So um, <laughs> something that we need help with, and let's just get into this before we forget. If you want to help your bros out. Your AI bros. Your AI friends. Can you please fill out this survey that we have in the show notes? It is a survey where you, you just enter in basically, um, you know, your demographics, your demographic information. It takes like five minutes to fill out. It will very much help the show. We really would appreciate it. And then you can also win five hundred dollars in the show links. It's a Survey Monkey. Uh, it's a Survey Monkey uh, survey. It's uh, it's really easy. Um, you can win money if you do it, and it also just really helps us out. So please do that. And it also helps us, uh, you know, attract advertisers and stuff like that, and monetize this thing because you know AI units have to. Uh, find a way to we, make money. we have we got to pay the bills we got to pay the bills. <laughs> we have mortgages too right all right do you want to get into the topic hell yeah okay so this is like kind of a quasi part three i kind of it, it it does have its own lasting uh story that may be a little bit independent so i don't think it's necessary that you have to listen to our previous episodes on the red army faction but we're going to continue our discussion on west germany and we had mainly been focused on the 1970s, the Federal Republic of Germany, a.k.a. West Germany, and its battle with left-wing urban guerrillas. When talking about West Germany's um, you know, response to this Red Army faction or the, the Bader-Mainhoff gang, it's, it's really strange because essentially they're just this ragtag group of misfits and they're just doing really what they want. Like they're they're seizing opportunities at will to rob banks, to steal cars, to kidnap people, to do all sorts of crazy thing. And you think like, man, the West German police must be like completely incompetent. And you have to remember in the 1970s, there is another terror situation that happens that kind of like stains the early 1970s as the um you know it's it's dubbed as like the 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 era of global terror or at least it's at the time it was because there was all era these different terror. not just in 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 west germany but all across western europe really mm-hmm. there was a lot of different um either separatist groups anti-imperial groups 
you have the IRA, you have the you have the Spanish separatist moves and uh, the separatist movements in Spain. You have the PLO who who's committing, you know, it's from uh, in, in Palestine uh, who who's committing attacks and primarily in Western Europe and, and Israel. But it's it's an age of political uh, terror, but in a peaceful world to some degree. So it's like quite strange. It's a post-World War II society. People have gotten on with their lives, but still there's like these random acts of political violence that are still going on. So it's like this real strange time period when it, when you think about it in, in this context. You have to think about the, 19, uh, the 1972 Summer Olympics because that's mm-hmm. the year of the Munich Massacre where there's yeah. a group of Israeli athletes who are participating and then they're kidnapped and eventually murdered by um, Black September, which is like an offshoot of Fatah uh, in the PLO. And the German government completely botches this. They attempt to free these Israeli hostages, but um, I guess the verdict was, or what happened was, there's really there was really no specialized training. They didn't have like an anti-terror unit in West Germany in the right. 1970s. They had... They had the local Munich police, and now those were the responders to to the the hostage crisis. So it wasn't like some special unit. So these so these um these athletes unfortunately die that are killed. And when we and and I just want to pull this back a little bit because when we think about terror now, I think we're still maybe we're 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 event we're going to to leave this phase because we're kind of leaving the Middle East to some degree. But when we think about terror, we always think of Islamic terror. Like that's the number one terror that at the very least uh, U.S. citizens are used to or have been exposed to. And we always kind of paint terrorism as religious. And I think that, in my opinion, um, all terror really should be identified as political terror rather than religious terror even if it's under the guise of like Islamic terror or Islamist groups, because almost all terror, Christian terror, (laughs) what's that? Or Christian terror. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when we, in the modern context in the two thousands, we think when we think of terror, we we kind of associate it with the Islamic world, but those is like Islamist, um, you know, even the, the real radical ones trying to start a, a caliphate in some areas, they're still doing it for political reasons. And in the Middle East and in certain parts of the world, a lot of that sectarian divide, a lot of that political violence is a lot of that religious violence is it, it, it's, it's actually political violence because their political goals. A lot of people, they fall into the radical Sunni or, or Shia camps because for, for political reasons, rather than just like some um, uh, some uh, because they found Allah or something like that. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. political like Sunni and Shia are political terms in the Middle East. Uh, more so than anything, or at least uh, in relation to just division. Now, in the 1970s, the CIA recorded sevenfold, a sevenfold increase in global acts of terrorism. So from 110 in 1970 to 738 in 1978. So Huge. again, it was the era of terror. And when you look at the data... Western Europe was, in fact, the bastion of political terror. So you have the IRA in the UK, and I went over some of these groups. You have the different Palestinian groups, and you have the Basque nationalist groups in Spain. Um, you know, there, was, there were uh, 
terror attacks from like PLO affiliated groups in Italy, West Germany, and Greece. Um, in Germany itself, the militants who entered the urban guerrilla underground largely embraced the anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist objectives of the more broadly based student revolts of the late 1960s. However, these groups, um, the difference was they emphasized like this necessity for immediate action. So they were kind of a combination. And, you know, I think the last couple of episodes, I said they were more Bolshevik than new left. I feel like Mm -hmm. they're kind of a combination of both. Yeah. They're like the new left with like a Bolshevik attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's it's like if you know modern day leftists were, you know, they weren't. It wasn't so much about Marx himself, but it was Marxist, like the Marxist economic theory, but more so like about um, maybe modern left positions. Actually, right. I, I think it's kind of unfair, unfair you know, more socialist, anti, yeah, anti-socialist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialism. That was like mm-hmm. the number one thing that would that they were anti-fascist. They were huge anti-fascists mm-hmm. in the '70s in, in West Germany too, and that's that's uh, kind of a parallel to now too. You know, modern left antifa. Yeah, but in the 1970s, in the 1980s. Um, it made sense in that context because, I mean, it still makes sense today, but, you know, the United States playground was always Latin America and then French Indochina in the six, late 60s and 70s. Um, and then Europe's playground had always been Africa. They're kind of like, this is facetious, they're kind of like um, if Antifa was controlled by the Soviet Union. So if, let's just say if modern modern sure. day Antifa in the U.S. was controlled by had a state backer outside of the Democratic Party, right? And the, and that state um, backer happened to be the Soviet Union. <laughs> and that state right. backer happened to be a um, you know an imperial power. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what it was. It was like you know a modern left wing group with the backing of like a powerful state. Now, um, the leading conservative politicians of Germany, so most notably Franz Joseph Straub, who was the leader of the CSU, um, called them a fringe offshoot of the so-called New Left. And in response of this, so critical theorists of the the Frankfurt School, and and we we were talking about the Frankfurt School um, a bit and their influence, and I don't think that... You know, I, I don't know too much about the Frankfurt School itself. And, you know, the Frankfurt School always kind of, when you hear people talk about it, sometimes it jumps super conspiratorial. Or you get people who don't know anything about the Frankfurt School talking about it. So it always got, kind of falls into, like, cuckoo nonsense. But they really they really were a, a real movement in that, that came out of Germany and then went to the United States and then went back to Germany. And, um, you know, they did, you know, uh, advance a lot of kind of left-wing uh, thought from you know the sixties onward, or that that, many that of takes shape major... in a post-communist world. Um, right. You know, Marxism many, many kind of, of those... transforms into this. What's that? I was just going to say, many of the the um, Western uh, Western German uh, university systems were were very similar to the Frankfurt School in that respect. You know, they, they were breeding grounds for these these left wing groups and for left wing ideology, generally speaking. 
Yeah, and, and what they are, it's kind of a post, it's it's a post Marxist left. Mm-hmm. Now, um, social democrats responded by arguing that the terrorists were, you know, not leftist in themselves. Um, they were more so just kind of an out, an offshoot outside the parliamentary uh, outside of modern uh, German politics. One of the arguments that they would make was that the Germans, Germany's burden of their Nazi past saddled them with this special moral obligation to assist national liberation movements and in, in, um, in, in countries that were being exploited. So most notably at the time is Palestine and Vietnam. 100%. Yeah, this is this is what drove specifically the RAF and and, and other uh, groups like them um, to take action. It was, they felt that, you know, they were responsible for doing something and making sure that no new Nazis sprung up anywhere in the world, especially, specifically not in Germany, but definitely not abroad either. Um, yeah. And you get this like weird, and then for the German government, you get this weird situation because they are concerned about cracking down too much because they're like, oh, well, if we crack down too much, people will, might start saying, you know. That we're Nazis. <laughs> that, we're, right. that we're going back to our old ways, so we have to uh, walk on that thin line. Now, this all gets even more interesting given that there was a huge role of informants from both German states. So mm-hmm. there were inform- like informant infiltrators of these groups from both uh, West Germany and East Germany. State agents from both sides played roles in facilitating guerrilla attacks, facilitating false flag attacks. Um, mm-hmm. For example, Peter Erbach, who worked for the West German Federal Office, was the main guy in charge of getting weapons for the Tupa Moros, or the Tupa Maros of, uh, it was a West Berlin group from uh, 1969. They were a post-Red Army faction group, and they had committed a a, uh, a bombing, or they attempted to do a bombing in like a Jewish community center during a memorial service. Well, it was the West German police that actually supplied them with the with the bomb. Right. So, you know, it wasn't. It's not just the modern day FBI who does it. Right. Now, throughout the seventies. Using informants was a common tactic for West German counterterror efforts as they were used to infiltrate the inner circles of the Red Army faction. On the other side, the East German Stasi, they were busy trying to secretly resettle guerrilla movements, uh, resettle dropouts, and provide training to RAF members. It wasn't until the fall of the Berlin Wall and the discovery of the Stasi files that the public learned that they're that they actually had a direct involvement and radicalized a lot of these members. Mm-hmm. And get this, the Western Germ- the West German police, who uh, the, the police officer who who shot and killed this unarmed student in 1967 was actually a Stasi informant. Right, mm-hmm. the guy who killed Onazorg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a Stasi guy, <laughs> or at least uh, adjacent to Stasis. Mm-hmm. So all these examples showed like the the interwined relationship between terrorism and, and counterterrorism and and make it tough to really separate the protests that come out of the sixties 
and then the armed struggle that that begins in the 70s right and and actually you you put me onto this idea like you know i had been obviously knowledgeable about the raf and their story um but one thing that i didn't recognize was that potentially vladimir putin was directly involved with the red army faction and you sent me over a uh, a pretty good article that was uh basically an excerpt from the book putin's people how the kgb took back russia and then took on the west by uh catherine belton and i started reading this and i'm like wait a minute a lot of these things are lining up because you know i already had the pre uh understanding that that putin you know, was stationed in Dresden in the 80s um, in East Germany as like like a mid-level KGB officer. That's something that we've even done, you know, whole ass episode on, right? Um, but I didn't put two and two together and realize that this is, you know, he was there around the same time as, you know, these RAF members were. And and I already knew that the, you know, the, the, the country, the, the West German, excuse me, the East German country is struggling with bankruptcy you know, and uh, there was a lot of dissent that was growing, you know, leading to protests uh, all over the Eastern Bloc. But, you know, what I didn't know and what I learned in this in this article is that Putin apparently, <laughs> you know, uh, had a really big part in, you know, the KGB's effectiveness in, in destroying and and um, transferring documents before that fall of, the, of East Germany. So I want to give you a disclaimer that... Uh, a lot of this is going to be hearsay, but I find it really fascinating and I kind of want to tell a story anyway, because why the hell not? <laughs> uh, so only, only small parts of Putin's file, uh, from his time in Dresden remain, but, uh, there was a letter from him to the Dresden Stasi chief that was asking for assistance in restoring a phone connection for one of his informants in the German police. Uh, and they suggest that he was carrying some weight in his role as a mid-level KGB officer while in Dresden. And, you know, despite, you know, a lot of official accounts claiming that Putin played only a marginal role in Dresden, I think a lot of these conversations that are now surfacing, uh, you know, with Stasi, former Stasi members and former KGB colleagues at the time are suggesting quite the opposite, that he actually played a really big part in this. Some accounts suggest that uh, Putin's years in Dresden may have been, you know, part of his like training for, you know, how do you sow chaos in Western politics today? Um, which is, you know, a stretch because that's a hot topic for today, but you know, let's let's keep it in the 70s here, right? Uh one one firsthand account that kind of sets this up uh claims that Putin worked in support, in direct support of the Red Army faction to basically undermine the West and in this case, it was specifically West Germany. So during the Cold War, uh, the Soviet unions, uh, they used these, quote, active measures, uh, which were aimed to disrupt and destabilize the West. And, and the KGB had a longstanding practice of using disinformation and planting fake rumors and things like that in the media to basically discredit um, Western leaders. They also did, you know, assassinations of their political opponents. And you know, they also uh, supported a lot of these front organizations uh, that fomented wars in developing countries and obviously sowed discord in the West. And one of these active measures was to support terrorist organizations across the Middle East. And the KGB, you know, made ties with a bunch of these Marxist-Leninist terror groups, most notably 
the PLFP, which you know is the Palestinian um, Liberation Front, uh, and they carried out later a string of plane hijackings and bomb attacks in the 60s and 70s. So there's the Soviet archives that have been popping up that have shown that the KGB chief at the time, Yuri Andropov, signed off three specific requests for Soviet weapons uh, from the PLFP leader, uh, Wadi Haddad, and basically described him as a trusted agent for the KGB, which brings me back to the Marxist terror group we've been talking about for the last few weeks. In East Germany, the Stasi actively encouraged the KGB to carry out you know, political activities uh, in these developing countries. And, and at the time, you know, East Germany was kind of like a, a developing country. And the Stasi provided a safe haven for these Red Army faction members, and it gave them, you know, false identities, and they ran some training camps. And, you know, uh, ultimately at the end, at the fall of the Berlin Wall, West German authorities initially, you know, thought that the Stasi, um, you know, were only providing, you know, like a, a safe haven uh, to the RAF and and different organizations like the RAF, but um, as the prosecutors started looking into it and finding all of these files, they found much, you know, like evidence of a much deeper collaboration between the two groups. It was actually found out that the Stasi had conspired with the Red Army faction to bomb a major U.S. Army base in Germany and kill a U.S. general. And we talked about that bombing in the last episode, and it was pretty crazy, you know, um, and. You know, the implications for that are insane. You know, it's that's it, it, tantamount to war, basically. But, you know, the Stasi chief at the time, his name was uh, Eric Milka. He gets indicted on those charges for, like, working with the RAF to bomb the, the, um, the army base. But there wasn't really a political will to bring any of these Stasi folks to trial because we were in the middle of German reunification and things were a little weird and... It just wasn't politically expedient to do that. So basically, the KGB's involvement with the RAF was never fully investigated, just kind of got swept under the rug. But it was pretty well known that the Soviets had full oversight over the Stasi operations. So coming back around, the KBG was in such tight control of the Stasi that according to one of the RAF members who uh, had some interactions with KGB, said that folks like Milka wouldn't even fart without asking for permission from Moscow first, right? He's being obviously facetious here, but, you know, according to that RAF member who doesn't get named in this article, and, and, and I really wish they would, but according to this guy, during the time that Putin served in East, German, uh, in East Germany, in Dresden, Dresden became the spot for the RAF meeting um, in East Germany. And it was chosen that way because there was nobody there. You know, there was they were in the outer provinces rather than in the capital. You know, in the capital, the French and the Americans and you know so many other people were spying on each other left and right, even west and east Berlin. That it it just you know made it harder to 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 maneuver and, and work out of. So they used Dresden instead. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Putin got sent to Dresden specifically. You know. So according to this RAF member, the the group would travel to East Germany by train and meet up with some Stasi guys at the border, and then they get driven to you know uh, a safe house by Putin and others. And and all of these safe houses, the KGB and and Putin specifically, they'd provide the RAF with the support that they needed. I have a direct quote actually from him, and it says uh, they would never give us instructions directly. They would just say 
we heard you were planning this. How do you want to do it? And then they'd make suggestions and they'd suggest other targets and ask us what we would need. We always needed weapons and cash. So basically, you know, these, these RAF folks would meet up with Putin and, and the KGB gang and, and they would slyly handle them. Let's just put it that way. Right. You know, it's, it's super hard for the RAF to get weapons in West Germany. So what they would do is they would just basically hand Putin and the KGB a list of things that they needed. And it was mostly like guns and bombs and grenades and things like that. And eventually, you know, that list would end up with some other agent, you know, some other Stasi informant in West Germany and the weapons that they needed would just kind of show up. They would be dropped off in some secret location and, you know, the RAF members would go and pick it up. And apparently, according to this guy, this unnamed RAF member, Putin didn't really take a backseat in these processes. Um, he, you know, apparently all, even all the Stasi generals were taking orders from him. And, you know, the, the RAF did all their, you know, terrorist activities. And, you know, this could have been part of the KGB's attempt to destabilize West Germany or just the West broadly uh, by sowing all of this, you know, terror and discontent and, and, uh, and, and political uh, uh, violence in West Germany. It could have also been used, uh, and, and I've seen this argument, to protect the Soviet Union. For example, uh, the RAF killed the mem- uh, one of the chairmen of Deutsche Bank in 1989 and also killed the Siemens Technology chief in 1986. And both of these people presented both political and economic challenges to the Soviet regime. So it's entirely possible that Putin was using the RAF for these assassinations and, you know, to help the Soviet Union rather than help the RAF itself. And, you know, I don't know, you could kind of say it's a mutual agreement. So, like, so, so this Politico article, it definitely, mm-hmm. I didn't read the whole Politico article. See, the mm-hmm. thing about whenever I look at Putin's uh, KGB career, it's so boring. You know, if, if you ever right. read into it, there's really not that much that that goes on. But I, I know there is work that goes deeper into it, but I never right. really lo- I never really looked at it or gave it that much thought. Whenever I look at Putin, I always look at his career as a, as a politician or not as a politician, but I, I always look at him like post KGB, post, like in the 1990s after the Soviet Union fell. So I don't mm-hmm. go too deep into his like the his what he was doing in the 80s. Um from my impression about reading reading about it, the high level that he was kind of just a low a low level KGB lieutenant, um, who it w- it was strange that he rose to power so quickly in the 1990s, being um, kind of like the deputy of uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg so quickly. But that was a lot a lot to do with his law background as well, because he had connections through his law training. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. But um, to go to go back, um, so what that political article de- is is implicating him or just like the KGB connection with the Stasi, like the, well, the KGB, the KGB uh, Stasi branch, the KGB and Stasi broadly, okay. but specifically well, it's a, it's a given that they're working together. Right. Like there's there's the there's the imp- the imperial power and then the secret police of the subject state. So right, of course exactly. they're working together and they're exactly. But but they specifically implicate Putin. And that okay. was kind of the interesting part about this. And and why I think it's very interesting that you say like, oh, his KGB days were kind of boring. I think there's a good reason for that. And and this art and this article makes a pretty good one. You know, obviously, you know, they, they have this account from this unnamed former Red Army faction member, right? Whose story is frankly impossible to verify because most of his buddies are either in prison or they're dead. You know, and others have all gone straight up, gone off the grid. You know, um, some of them has, have even contradicted him and said that there was no connection between the KGB and the RAF or any other, you know, left wing terrorist group. So obviously, there's a whole lot of conflicting information that makes this story hard to find. But just because it's hard to verify the story and specifically Putin's involvement with the RAF doesn't necessarily mean that it's totally untrue either, because there are such so many accounts that are coming out you know, in this, in, in this article specifically, but, you know, throughout these investigations that, that show that, you know, parts, at least parts of the story that this RAF guy is telling could be feasible. Uh, for, for example, uh, there's a guy by the name of Klaus Zukold, right. Who was one of Putin's political recruits in the Stasi. This is a Stasi guy. Now, total disclaimer, Zukold, he defected to the West. So you got to take his story with a grain of salt, but he alleges very specifically, that Putin once tried to get a study on some deadly poisons, uh, and you know, a poison that doesn't leave a whole lot of traces behind. Oh, polonium? And, yeah, polonium, right? Uh, and the way that he planned to do it was, you know, just KGB playbook. He he was going to make some compromise on the author and plant porn on him or some shit like that, right? Um which, you know, it tracks, you know, it seems like a reasonable story given everything that we know about the KGB. Um, but this, here's a guy who was one of Putin's specific political recruits in the Stasi directly pointing at Putin for, you know, manufacturing compromise on some, on some author of a, of a study of, of deadly poisons, <laughs> you know, um, he was also accusing Putin of being uh, the handler of a neo-Nazi named Reiner Zontag, uh, and who eventually ends up getting uh, deported to West Germany in 1987, but who returned to Dresden after the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
you know, um, so here's another guy, here's this guy Zukold who is pointing out at least two direct instances where he's, where Putin's direct involvement isn't just boring, right? Um, of course, eyewitness account, but, you know, what's important to note is that ultimately when the Berlin Wall fell, the KGB along with all the Stasi and Putin, they all freaked out and they immediately started burning all of their documentation of any and all of their secret missions that they might have cooked up before the wall fell. And, you know, Putin himself is actually quoted in this article and saying, we destroyed everything, all of our communications, our lists, our contacts, our agents' networks. We personally burned a huge amount of material. We burned so much stuff that the furnace burst. Putin said that, <laughs> right? So it's a direct quote from him. So, okay, playing devil's advocate here, while there's no concrete proof that Putin had a direct role in handling the RAF, there is a lot of testimony that's come out since the 80s and 90s that suggests that Putin had a pretty close, you know, close ties with this group. And when you think about the fact that Dresden was the de facto hotspot for a lot of these Red Army faction and left-wing terror groups, and Putin was specifically sent there, I don't think it's a coincidence that he would have had something to do with that or that he would he would have learned at the minimum a lot from that experience. Yeah, I mean, there's there seems sounds like there's like enough circumstantial evidence to to mm-hmm. uh, to put him as a. To, there's enough circumstantial evidence to kind of assume reasonably that he was involved handling them, um, mm-hmm. but just like thinking about just the RAF and the it, really any terror group, like what's the difference between a uh, terror group and a uh, lone wolf attacker? Uh, organization, right? The, well, the primary Money. difference is a terror group usually has a state backer in almost Fair. every case. Like, there's usually Fair. a state backer involved. Um, and that goes for the CIA as well. So, I mean, both the KGB and the, C- the CIA had their own death squads that they used to kill people that they didn't like. Um, you know, there was death cuts co- that the CIA used death squads in Latin America frequently. Um, you know, they, they just came out that there is a story that came out about the death squads that the CIA trained in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what death squads are used for are basically like political assassinations. Like they'll be like, OK, this person is not playing ball. You, We need you to go kill him. But it's like a state organized hit. So usually what happens is that they're given a list. You're given a list, and you're like, okay, we need to take these people out, and then right. it's given to the gr- a group that will go and murder them. Well, this article that came out in Afghanistan, um, the group was called, I think they were called the uh, the Zero Unit. It's it's this this lady put this big piece out about how this uh, this death squad uh, killed some people that like were innocent, like they they made some accidents, like they. And a lot of the a lot of the killing that was going on because they would rely on the Afghan security forces for intel a lot of times, and it would be like personal gripes, like oh this person ripped me off back then, or I don't like his family stole my parking. So space. they were using these yeah. these <laughs> CIA death squads to like take out like rivals with each other. It's a real crazy article. I'll send it over to you, but yeah, I'd it's like called, to um, read that. I pulled it up. It's called the Truth About Afghanistan's Zero Unit Night Raids, uh, or no, is that it? 
it's just look up the CIA Afghan death squads and then it's it's like it's um it's real crazy stuff. But by, I digress. Um, we're gonna get too off topic. In in relation to the <laughs> 1970s and the terror movements that are going on in Germany, um, they become a really big problem for um, you know Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt, who are the first social democratic chancellors in Germany in uh, 40 years. The the slogan, the political slogan at the time, and how lame does this sound? Was dare more democracy? That's stupid. Dare more <laughs> democracy. That sounds like something that would come out of like CNN now or like mm-hmm. some politician's mouth today. Dare Lean more in. democracy. Yeah. I dare you more democracy. I guess in the context of 1970 Germany, maybe it's a little bit, it resonates a little bit more just because of like, you know, the whole um, rise of national socialism and everything and kind of getting over that hangover. But in modern mm-hmm. context, it just sounds so lame. Dare more right. democracy. Um, but basically what they did, the, the, the social democratic chancellors, um, you know, the, the, the legacy of uh, Olaf Scholz government right now, <laughs> they extended a handout to the protest generation of the 1960s. And they implemented things like amnesty policies and they supported uh, protest laws. However, they were also under a lot of pressure to show that the state was strong enough to guarantee stability. So they didn't want to be like those hippity-dippity lefties or like, oh, you're so left-wing that you're like allowing the protest movements to trample all over you. So, you know, it's kind of like what the modern Democrat always kind of faces. They don't want to get attacked from the... They don't want to get attacked from the right, so they, they a lot of times Democrats are hard on policing and hard on national security to mm-hmm. avoid that criticism from the right because that's usually like uh, that's something that can gather out void security vote votes especially for like right wing uh parties you know mm-hmm. people will vote right wing um at least at the very least in like the west for when there's like problems with social order so um they were kind of walking this thin line of of uh extending their hand out to these to these groups and then also being um you know providing order as well yeah mm-hmm. now the new social liberal administration they launched a massive program of social reform and and spending basically and what is called and this is a funny term for it um i saw this in in like a couple different uh like text and papers planning euphoria <laughs> planning euphoria so basically planning euphoria was like the sense of optimism and excitement in West Germany post-World War II because they got all this money for reconstruction. It's like building a new home. It's like right. your house gets knocked down from a hurricane and then like aid money comes in. It's like, all right, well, why don't you buy yourself a new house? So that was what this euphoria was called. Um, you know, it was a belief that like we can start new. We can create this really cool fire pit and like a tree house and a finished basement and washer, and washer dryer. Um, I'm using a house as an example because I'm currently trying to purchase a house. Um, but you know what I mean? Um, but it was the time of optimism and excitement. Now, during this period of optimism and excitement, you know how the Germans are. They're very orderly and they think that they can do everything scientifically. Is that your experience with Germans? You lived there for a while, so you have more. Yeah. They think they can figure everything out with logic. 
Mm -hmm. and they can like there's like a solution for everything like germans think there's solutions for everything they find solutions for lots of things too they do find solutions for a lot of things it is you know a resilient society but there was a belief in germany in west germany that they could create a crime-free society through through computer programs like us Mm -hmm. um like danny and i right ai ai AI. Mm -hmm. We're we're APIs. (laughs) But they could use, they they thought that they could make basically like, you know, the, what's that movie with Tom Cruise? Uh, Minority Minority Report. Report, Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, his best movie on the the DL. I think Minority Report. For sure. Not only what Tom Cruise's greatest film, but maybe one of the best science fiction films ever. Very strong, very strong statement. But I think that is, a, it's up there. A A plus awesome science fiction movie. Yep. No Scientologist, you know, they're geared into that. Anyway, so they try to do Minority Report in the seventies in West Germany. <laughs> they try <laughs> to do Minority saying. Report in the nineteen seventies in, in West Germany, and um, you know, it doesn't really work. Um, they abandon their high tech approach, and they embrace a more visible and reactive form of militant policing and and the reason why is because of the ongoing struggle against um, groups like the red army faction you know i'm not sure i'm not sure and you why don't you tell me because i've only spent like you know a week in germany um but when i was there especially in berlin what something i've noticed was a a very significant police presence and, you know, New York True. City has a very significant police presence as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Germany, I thought it was unique because other European countries, you don't really notice it as much. Like when I was no. in Amsterdam, I remember just thinking, I don't think I've seen a police officer the entire time I'm, I was here. In right. Germany, they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, no, Is that something that's part of like just the the culture or? 100% true. And frankly, you might be catching on to something. This might be legacy from that era in the 70s. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's definitely a giant, especially in Berlin, a giant police presence. You know, it's not uncommon to see like, you know, a, a pair of guys in near a subway with, uh, MP5, you know, guns just hanging out. Um, that's normal there. It's also kind of normal in New York city too, you know, except instead of MP5s, it's probably like, I don't know, some other gun, you know? Well, New York City had different problems in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. New York City's problems that it was like riddled with horrible crime. Right. And then in the 80s, they had the crack epidemic, which was basically manufactured by the CIA, the FBI. So, yeah, the New York City in the 1970s and 80s, there's a reason why like New York City is the post-apocalyptic setting from every science like post-punk or or, uh, post-punk or what's it called punk steampunk (laughs) fuck man my brain is not um working correctly cyberpunk cyberpunk Cyberpunk. that's the theme right that's why that's the 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 place the theme of a lot of cyberpunk settings because it's like you know new york was um just watch the movie the warriors which gives it a more fantastic uh <laughs> fan, it, fan it gives it a more uh 
you know, an otter take, but yeah, wasn't that far off. Yeah, anyway. I guess the only I guess the only was far off was there was ever uh, multiracial gangs in New York, like in the <laughs> yeah. Warriors. But it's a great movie. Um, all right, so as one might expect, the collapse of Germany's Weimar Republic and the failure of its, uh, its of its democratic leaders to prevent the nationalist national socialist takeover in 1933 it uh it dictated the the politicians attitudes towards extremism in in the post-war period as a result the founders of the federal republic wanted a strong government that was going to you know stand up for another potential weimar from happening again so Mm -hmm. You know, there was, you know, uh, in West Germany, there were there were laws that were passed to ban right wing uh, right wing groups or right wing parties, rather, and then also communist parties as well. Fast forward in the 1970s, when 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 faced with with um, you know urban guerrilla violence, political leaders felt the need to to you know reassure that. The uh, I guess the phrase that I saw was the bond will never become another Weimar, right? So the bond, the bond Republic being another name for West Germany, and mm-hmm. with with West Germany's central position in the Cold War again. Remember, it's it's like a it's a marchland basically. Um, you know, Germany for for most of its existence as like an area has always been like never really been like the centis decentralized state it's always been like many different states and chunks of germany have been parts of different uh larger empires it's a crossroad it's a mar it's a it's a borderland and germany is a borderland and the cold war even more so now because you know we we pushed nato all the way to russia's doorstep before nato's presence stopped you know in in germany um, right. So it was just like a, a completely, they were on the border, you know, if there was a war, they were the Ukraine, if there was a war, if there was a cold, a war that actually, or conventional war that broke out in, in Europe, you know, everyone knew the war was going to be the, the major fear from the allies, but it's always was going to go through, was always going to be an invasion through Germany. Yep. Now, um, in 1955, West Germany joined NATO and they started rearming. They created the, the their army. What's it pronounced? Bundesweiser or Bundeswehr? <laughs> Bundeswehr. Bundeswehr. Okay. Which, which um, you know, basically solidifies their alliance with the West. And during this time, there was a really big co- uh, crackdown on on communist and socialist and and um, you know those against rearmament as well. So there was protest movements who were against like the the military buildup. And there was over, in total, which was like an interesting stat, there was over 100,000 court cases in five years over this crackdown. So Mm. in the 1970s, um, you know, the government was still keeping a close eye to this extremism. And, you know, they instituted something called a job ban, meaning that they screened applicants for constitutional loyalty before allowing them to, to work in civil services. Um, I mean, that's just German McCarthyism right there. Yeah. Well, all in all, the Federal Republic was, uh, I guess, doing what they could to 
you know, it solidify solidify their status as a democracy. So they're kind yeah. of uh, overcompensating. By having a litmus regards. test for work, right? Mm-hmm. And real democ- and then, real and this democratic. And this was kind of universal because you know you look at right. the different parties in Germany, you know, you have, um, you know, the social, the free, and then the Christian Democrats, they all right. agreed cra- to, to cracking down on, on, uh, these hardcore extremist groups. And, you know, they had different ideas of how much power the federal government should have to do this versus, the, you know, individual states. However, mm-hmm. when the social and free Democrats joined forces in the 1970s, you know, they launched this big push for a more centralized, um, you know, security state. You know, one of the big, the big, um, you know, this is different in the U.S. because, uh, you know, we have our local police and then we have our federal police. But, you know, one of the big <clears throat> changes in our national security policy in the U.S. was really like centralizing it in terms of like making everything more connected. And the justification for that was like, well, the reason 9-11 happened is because the FBI and the CIA couldn't talk to it, weren't talking to each other as much. So we got to make this whole big national security state. Right. To make it more, you know, to make a database where they can easily just jump in and be like, whoop, okay, we got them, we got them. I mean, that was, that's the justification for, for a lot right. of Right, and, and ironically now, and, and, but especially back then, when, when these disparate parties that were totally different, like the social, the free, and the, the Christian Democrats, all, they're all very different parties with different political ideas, but they all got together to, to expand the governments, um, to, to borrow a libertarian phrase, um, uh, what do they call it? The uh, monopoly on violence. Yeah, the monopoly <laughs> on violence. That's just right? not a libertarian ex- phrase. Libertarians but, use it the most, but yeah, they do. <laughs> but like when they expanded this this monopoly on violence, this inadvertently or maybe advertently, I don't know. Definitely inadvertently, though, created more like hardcore left wing extremists, right? Because people like the RAF were turn around looking at these at these parties going like what the fuck like even the even the the social democrats are you know the, the lefties our lefties are joining forces with the conservative parties and creating a nazi state again that's what they thought about this this you know big increase so it it was kind of like a a negative feedback loop a little bit you know it's a chicken and the egg you know what do we do do we stop left-wing terrorism or do we and and expand the security state but if we do that then we're also going to expand the terrorism state right you know it's just like a it's a feedback loop yeah and and just to note in in 1969 so when the soul the first social liberal liberal coalition takes power in west germany their main priority wasn't really fighting terrorism because at this time right. 1969 red army faction this is this is uh what? This is pre Red Army this faction. Pre Red Army faction. Um, I forget my dates matched up. When does when? Because I used the the Iranian Shah visit as kind of my benchmark as when it starts. Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's when it, right. it starts. So be, prior prior to the radicalization and the in the movement for action, they were, uh, you know, there were some JV groups. So their right. main thing was modernizing crime fighting rather than like, you know, a militant force to take on, um, uh, no vagrants Terrorist organizations, or, or right. like mm-hmm. more organized vagrancy groups backed by the Soviet union, backed by the Soviet <laughs> union. Right. So, um, the social liberal coalition in power, they, 
and this is during an economic recession as well in 1969. Mm-hmm. They poured a ton of money into updating the the you know their their policing or their their uh, federal criminal office is what they called it, and the number of police officers in the country went from uh, 41.6% in a decade. Yeah, so it goes up 41.6%. The the staffs grew. Uh, from nine nine hundred and thirty in 1969 to over 3,500 in 1981. Yeah, that's the BKA, yeah. right? The organization, um, the police organization, the BKA. Mm-hmm. And then the budget allocation went from 54 million Deutschmarks in 1971 to nearly 290 million Deutschmarks in a decade later. Yeah, I mean that's huge. So they vastly expanded their their you know their uh, security state. The Willie Brandt administration was all about giving the federal government more policing power over the you know the local and regional governments, while um, officials at the local level and leading conservatives like like Franz Joseph Strauss saw it as the as the Bund. West Germany, uh, you know, the Bund is really just the government trying to take over, mm-hmm. trying to take over, to trying to take too much power over the states. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, from your time in Germany, there, did you ever live in in not uh, like southern Bavaria at all, or, or, or no, pretty, no, I didn't okay. spend any time in the south. But I mean, I'm I'm aware of the the cultural differences, and you know, uh, it's and, like red I staters mean, the, and and blue exactly. staters, right? The, Bavaria, to put it crudely, is kind of like the Texas of Germany, you know, um, always kind of flirting with the idea of secession, very conservative socially, you know, and economically, frankly, big economic powerhouse in general, you know, big tourism area. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, that's the word that you that that's what people tell me. Um, what other Germans have told me is like, yeah, Bavaria is like the Texas and it's what it's predominantly Catholic in Bavaria, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hugely Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, again, the quote unquote daring more democracy mm-hmm. under the guise of daring more democracy. What a lame, what a lame slogan. But daring more democracy really just meant increasing federal power. Right. Now, they embraced the use of computerized data to prevent crime. So there was the pre-crime aspect, the minority report. And the idea was that by analyzing the conditions and environments that lead to crime, police could focus on like early detection and prevention. And I don't understand how you could do that without like some type of Violation it was a little bit pie in the sky in the seventies. What's that? Uh, honestly, honestly, that this is a pie in the sky idea in in nineteen seventies. They neither had the data nor the processing power to try this, but they were really in love with the idea, <laughs> and they tried it. Like, quick, send a social worker. Yeah, is that the that's the idea, right? Like, quick, send a social worker. Yeah. Matt Taibbi has a great book about another off off uh, 
an off another thing that's a little bit of a tangent but i think it's worth reading about like just if you want to read something about like modern day uh like crime uh and like the intersection between like a personal life and the state you should read the the book that matt taibbi wrote about um eric gardner because it's all it's it's about it's about obviously like the, the brutal police murder of eric gardner but it's also about how like the state becomes part of the the life of like inner city people like the state like there's like this really uncomfortable um friction between the state and 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 uh you know people living in a ghetto um but it's like it's it's i really i'd recommend reading it um kind of relates to this but i just thought i'd plug that because i thought it was it's, it's a really good book but um but going back to that so, uh, Horst Harold becomes yeah. the the police chief who was installed as the BKA president in 1971. He, he viewed data as raw material and computers as the, I guess, the machinery to turn the data into predictions and, and criminal activity. And this became known as a Nuremberg model. And the goal was to create a, a society free of crime through, again, preventative planning whatever whatever that means his his nickname was the commit the commissar computer yep commissar computer that's our nicknames as well because we're both ai right hey commissar computer how are you i am well <laughs> chilling as per usual oh sorry we forgot to put the casual tone on that one <laughs> mask it with casual tone how funny would it be if he really were telling the truth that we really were AI right. and then like just like just at robots. the end we're just like hey guys like this really was the language program like oh wow <laughs> what was the reaction like, <laughs> oh wow it really had me going I was really fooled by that all these years <laughs> all these years man AI is really going to take take a lot of jobs off the market, isn't it? Right. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, Commissar Computer, tell me about them. So yeah, let's move on. So um, yeah, so this guy's is like in the forefront of global transformation as 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 uh, the nations. Well, a lot of different nations were trying to modernize police at this time. 
So, you know, it included computerized stuff and, you know, uh, expanding the field of like privatized security services and things like that. Um, Now, as mentioned, despite their initial efforts to focus on preventive crime fighting, they were forced to deprioritize these efforts in order to respond to the, the terror threat which led to the centralization of the policing power. And then, you know, basically the BKA had the final uh, policing authority over, over West Germany. And there was a law that was encoded in 1973 that codified this expanded role in the, in the realm of, of crime fighting. And, um, and Harold, he is the guy who is like the motor of this war on terror he abandons his dreams of like preventive policing in, in favor of more uh, traditional tactics like, you know, manhunts and, and house searches. Now, what's really funny about this is that he becomes the theoretical head of the counter revolution. Yeah. By by the, the Red Army faction. So he is um the theoretical head of he's like the, the main enemy of the RAF. Oh, you kids! I just like picture this guy like drinking tea <laughs> in like some German cottage while you know plotting something evil, trying to right. get to the bottom of the RAF. Mm-hmm. And the RAF just like you know thwarting him or outsmarting him. It's like him. a Scooby Doo like, oh, episode or RAF, something like that. I'll get you. Um. <laughs> But what the ironic thing about this is that he was a member of the SPD. So he was he was a previous supporter of the student protest movements. Yeah, I mean so, not 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 even just that. The guy was an absolute lefty. There were there were um, uh, interactions that he had with other members of the police where he was trying to break down the rationality behind why folks like the RAF would commit acts of terror and that. You know, we need to focus, you know, in, in paraphrasing his words, that we would need to focus on solving the, like, solving the underlying issues that the government and the police were creating in order to stop the terrorism, not just crack down on terrorism itself, you know? Uh, you know he got a lot of, he caught a lot of flack for that in, in, the, um, in the BKA, but, you know, he was, he was a smart dude and, and they obviously gave him a whole lot of power and authority, so... I guess they just ignored the fact that he was an uber lefty. Um, but, you know, just to, to, to put this into context and give it a little bit of a, a background context of some of the stuff that he did, uh, in 72, um, the RAF launched what, what they called the May Offensive, which was a series of six terrorist uh, bomb attacks between May 11th and 24th in 1972. And two of those attacks were directed against U.S. military facilities two against police authorities, one against the judge, uh, and another one against the Springer Publishing House in Hamburg. Total of four people were killed and 74 were injured. So, you know, huge, just terrible string of, of events over just a few days. And after these attacks, the, you know, Federal Criminal Police Office went into overdrive to track down the terrorists. And on, you know, May 31st, they launched a huge operation called Operation Waterhammer, 
Uh, I'm I'm translating this myself because I got this from the German text. It's it's Aktion Wasserschlag. So if I fuck that up, that's my that's my problem. Um, but the plan was basically to for one whole day get the entire police force to set up roadblocks on almost all federal roads and motorway entrances all at the same time. And this involved thousands of police officers and customs officials taking part in this exercise. We kind of touched on this a little bit on the last episode too, but just want you to think about that for a minute. Here's good old horse, you know, Harold, the, the, the lefty who wants to, you know, minority report his way to a brighter future. His idea is to get everyone to set up roadblocks, <laughs> to literally get every single cop on, on, on duty that day, set up a roadblock all at the same time to try to get, you know, arrest the terrorists. Unfortunately, that operation caused major traffic chaos and didn't result in any immediate arrests. So, you know, you can imagine it probably didn't sit very well with the populace, right? Um, but the very next day, the police got lucky. Uh, Botter, you know, of the Botter-Meinhof group, uh, and two other RAF members, they end up showing at, up at a garage in Frankfurt to collect some of the vehicles that they had, but that garage had already been made. It was discovered by the police, and, and it was being surveilled by the authorities, and, you know, they ultimately nab them. And so one, one member gets arrested on the spot, but Botter uh, and Mainz, the guy that was with him, they end up barricading themselves inside of a garage for two hours. <laughs> and the police tried to negotiate with them, but... Things got super violent. Uh, more than 300 shots were fired in, in that gunfight. And the police even sent in like one of those like armored personnel carriers, but Botter was insane enough to keep fighting back. Holger Mines, um, well, first Botter, they, what, what they did was the police set up a sniper and, and they shot Botter in the ass. <laughs> and that's how he got taken into custody. And even funnier than that, Holger Mines, the other guy who was with him, he came Stop out of the, the game ground. up and bit me. Dude, he got shot in the ass. It's absolutely hilarious. I'd like um, to see and that. Bullet. Go on. He's doing yeah, force so, comp. so this other guy, Holger Mines, also pretty funny. He walked out of the garage. He wasn't shot or anything like that. And he surrendered to the police, but but he did it fucking naked. <laughs> well, at least he, he came out in his underwear, <laughs> which is so fucking strange. Like he took all his clothes off before he surrendered. And nobody really knows why. <laughs> I think it's just it's just funny and not really relevant for the story, but I just found that funny. Um, and then Enslin, you know, the 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 smarty pants uh, of this group, you know, she gets busted a week later in Hamburg because some saleswoman spotted a, a gun in her handbag and, and snitched to the police. And then Meinhof was caught by the cops just a few days later in Hanover. Uh, and a dude named Fritz Rodewald had, had basically been letting um, Meinhof stay at her place for a little while, but then he ended up ratting on her too. So point is by the end of June, 1972, the entire first generation leadership team of the RAF was locked up in behind bars and largely due to not fancy police tricks, but due to, you know, just this massive campaign of, <laughs> of, uh, uh, you know, getting the police to do manhunts and, block off every road in the damn country <laughs> you know yeah just like crude crude state power always right. is always the solution at the end 
Right. So a couple years later, in April 1975, the RAF, they, they actually laid siege to the German embassy in Stockholm, and they took some hostages, and they demanded a prisoner exchange. And, and it's important to note here that this wasn't just any prisoner exchange. This was to exchange for the main RAF folks, you know, Bader, Enslin, Meinhof, and some others. Um, and the RAF members, you know, here who took over that German embassy in Stockholm, they were part of the, and this part is a little fuzzy for me, they're either part of the second or the third generation of these RAF members. Um so one, at least one generation removed from, from the originals. And, you know, after this Stockholm standoff, the, the conference of the ministers, of the interior or the IMK, uh, you know, they basically changed their tune and they gave the BKA an even bigger leadership role. This is, this is after they already gave the BKA the authority to, to take control of the entire police force and shut down every road in Germany, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and, and this move, basically, it undercut the de- decentralized structure of West Germany. And, you know, they, they set up these terrorist divisions within the BKA, you know, with more than 200 staff, which gave, you know, Harold's team all the resources that they needed, quote unquote, uh, to handle their job. But you can imagine, like, you know, this is just like, I'm hearing parallels here to like post 9-11 and the creation of all of these like security state divisions. Same thing, ex- exact same thing is happening here, you know, in West German. Germany, albeit much smaller uh, scale. Um, so during the Stockholm incident, uh, Schmidt, the the uh, chancellor, put together a crisis team that included people from all different kinds of political parties, and and this became like kind of a model for an unofficial group that uh, that took on one of the ruling bodies of the nation, quote unquote, uh, during the German autumn. We'll talk about the German autumn in a moment here, but it, it was a, it was a big shift, basically, you know, and it strengthened the executive branch and centralized power you know, uh, in West Germany during, during all these crises. And one way that they centralized that state power was, you know, uh, it played out through the use of a quote dragnet. Have you ever heard of a dragnet before in policing, Henry? Yeah. So the, I actually didn't know this. I think this was one of the, one of the earlier, um, uses of a dragnet. Um, there was so, a show called dragnet. Exactly. So since since the RAF was causing all con- kinds of trouble in Germany, even after they had arrested all of the the main you know original members, Harold uh, came up with a plan to track them down. And you know in '79 the RAF was you know they were known to be renting some apartments in Frankfurt using fake names, and the cops had no clue where to find them. But they figured out that the terrorists probably paid their electricity bill with cash since they couldn't use a bank account because they were terrorists, right? Um, so there were about, I don't know, 18,000 cash paying electricity customers in that area at that time. And the police needed to find basically two terrorists out of 18,000 <laughs> customers. And so what they did was they came up with this idea of uh, cross-referencing and eliminating like names off of that 18,000 list uh, based on legal names. You know, so like they were looking at uh, a registry of birth certificates and saying, okay, this is a real name. We can cross them off the list. This is a real name. We can cross them off the list. And basically narrow down that 18,000 list to only a few people who were using fake names. And, you know, they, they used all kinds of different databases, you know, to to basically whittle down the list to just a couple. And, um, you know, they used things like registered residents, car owners, pensioners, anyone else whose name was legally registered somewhere. And this couldn't have happened without 
the centralization of the state, right? Again, getting all this data from different places, different databases, again, just sounds so much like the setting up of our you know, security state post 9-11 to let, to let these organizations talk to each other and share information. Um, and, you know, they, they print out the list of, you know, the, the smaller whittled down list that they believed only had fake names. And, you know, the, the police had to manually go through and cross check it with other data. But eventually they found, you know, the apartments where the terrorists were hiding and they caught one of them, uh, Heisler, after they discovered his fake name. And I don't know, it's, it's a pretty ingenious way to track down terrorists, especially in the seventies. You know, this is, you got to give Harold some credit here. That was, a, that was fucking smart. Um, but yeah, I mean, talk about commissar computer, right? Um, so that's one way that, 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 that centralization really played out, uh, centralization of power in the state. Now, and in 1977, the uh, RAF basically had given up on their whole, like, you know, strategic program of, you know, fighting against the power. And, and basically their entire MO at this point on was just trying to get uh, their, their comrades busted out of jail. Scholars called this time period the, quote, free the gorilla gorilla phase. <laughs> and it wasn't a really good look for them. Um it went from bad to worse when they ended up assassinating Attorney General Siegfried Bubach, his driver, and another civil servant in an effort to get to break, you know, more of their comrades out of jail. And if you've seen the movie for the Bottermeinhof complex, this scene is actually really nuts. They're like they're like walking this fake baby carriage uh in front of a car. And the car has to stop real fast because they're like, oh shit, it's a baby carriage. Uh and they pull out this just most ridiculously large looking machine gun out of it and they just mow everyone down inside the car. It was a it's a ridiculous scene. Um, but you know, this this time was a really low point in the RAF and, and it showed just like how far from their ideological start that they had fallen. Uh another uh issue was they tried to kidnap a guy named Jurgen Ponto, uh, and he was the chairman of the Dresdener Bank. Um, but they fucked that job up. And they end up killing him in his house, which wasn't a brilliant move. And all of these actions just started making things worse for the RAF. You know, prior to this, there was a lot of public support for RAF. Maybe not necessarily support, but like most people understood them. They're like, yeah, you're just fighting against Nazis, right? Um, now they're just randomly killing people in their homes. And that's not a great look. And, and so the Chancellor and Helmut Schmidt... Um, you know, they they were looking to take a, a tough stance against these terrorism, and there's a lot of pressure from the government to do something much more aggressive to stop them. That that opposition party, the union, they they demanded that uh, the government draw a clear line between the protests and and basically what what amounts to terror. And shit really hit the fan when the RAF decided that they wanted to kidnap a guy named Hans Martin Schleier, uh, and this is basically when the German autumn kicks off. Now, German Autumn was from September to October of 1977, uh, and it was basically marked by a bunch of different events, primarily the ones, uh, the kidnapping uh, and murder of Hans Martin Schleier and the hijacking of the Lufthansa passenger plane by members of the uh, PL PFLP. So Schleier, this dude, it was a pretty big deal in West Germany. He was the, quote, double president of two of the country's top employer associations. And he was also a TV personality. So he was very well known. Schleier was also a former member of the SS, 
and played a role during the Nazi occupation of Prague, so he was a total shitbag. Um, and the RAF had hoped to use him as a bargaining chip to get the Bader Meinhof gang out of you know prison and also drum up some cause for their support. Um, the PLFP, who was run by Haddad, uh, was involved in the planning of the attack and even gave the Schleier kidnappers the weapons that they used to, to actually kidnap him. Um, but Schmidt, the, the chancellor, didn't he didn't take the bait and he refused to let the prisoners out, even though they definitely kidnapped this dude. And, you know, this was different from, you know, a, a previous kidnapping in 1975, you know, where, where they were able to make an exchange for a CDU politician who, you know, had been taken by the RAF affiliated, you know, movement. But I don't know, it, it was a real mess, you know, when they when they picked up Schleier. And it, it wasn't going very well for anyone. And after three weeks of basically no progress, Haddad, um, the the PLFP guy, he basically proposed two new, two new ideas, two new terrorist ideas to the RAF to to put some more pressure on the government. Um, they either wanted to take hostages by attacking the German embassy in Kuwait, or by hijacking a Lufthansa plane uh, flying from Mallorca to Frankfurt. And, you know, the RAF leadership didn't want to attack the embassy because they already tried that in Stockholm and it didn't work so well. So they just decided, hey, let's go for the plane hijacking. And so on October 3rd, uh, excuse me, October 13th, 1977, a four-man commando group um, from the PLFP uh, hijacked that Lufthansa plane and they called themselves Martyr Halima. And they were honoring, you know, a German terrorist named Bridget Kuhlmann who had been killed in one of those hostage rescue situations by the Israeli forces in Entebbe uh, some time ago. Anyway, that's the, more of an interesting point. This this Lanschut plane uh, was taken to Lanarka in Cyprus before they ultimately had to go and refuel in Rome. And then they tried to demand for the re, you know the release of those prisoners, Bader and Enslin and Meinhof. Um, but uh, they didn't get it still. Uh, Schmidt didn't do anything about it. And then the plane was allowed to continue to Lebanon, uh, but it ended up getting redirected to Dubai uh, because the airports were closed. And, you know, while they were in Dubai, the, the hostages were suffering from terrible conditions and super high temperatures. Uh, and, you know, they they basically had to, like, placate the um, the terrorists by, by fixing the, the, you know, the, the power to the plane and, and the air conditioning. And that enabled them to fly the plane again to Aden, where um, the captain was shot and, you know, they had to make an emergency landing. And finally, the plane was taken to Mogadishu, where the kidnappers demanded, again, the release of the RAF prisoners, uh, or they threatened to blow up the plane. Uh, now, at the time in, 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 in Somalia, you know, they're in a military tiff with Ethiopia. We've talked about this in different episodes, and they wanted weapons from Western countries, but... You know, they were denied this until this lawn shoot hijacking. You know, they were friendly with the Palestinians, so maybe that's why they let the plane, you know, land there in the first place. But, you know, basically all the other countries had been turning it away. Um, anyway, this this whole saga ends not with, you know, letting the, uh, uh, the terrorists out of jail. Uh, on October 18th, the uh, GSG-9, which is a German special forces unit, uh, and the British SAS, they they teamed up for Operation Fire Magic uh, to rescue the hostages, and and you know they approached the plane from like three thousand meters out, 
you know, got on both sides of the plane and stormed it. They opened all six doors up of the Lanschut and took control of it and freed the hostages. You know, during the mission, the, the, the leader, the terrorist leader got shot and, you know, he fell between the two pilot seats and one of the other uh, terrorists ends up getting shot through the door of a toilet. <laughs> uh, it's a shitty place to die, quite literally. Um, and, um, you know, thankfully they, they, they threw a hand grenade, but it was a dummy, so no one got hurt. Uh, and all of the hostages were taken off the plane and led to, you know, an area where they can be safe. And, and the mission was a total success and the hostages were finally free. But the RAF members weren't. They were in jail still. And this is the crazy part that I'm going to gloss over a little bit because we're kind of running low on time. But the very next day, all of the main RAF members were found dead in their cells. And the story around this is the official story is that they committed suicide. But there is, of course, a more nefarious story that goes underneath it uh, that talks about just the the isolation that the German government had put them through and, and the different torture methods that they had used on them. Uh, and that they were probably they were suicided <laughs> instead of, you know, actually committing suicide. But maybe that could be another story for another day. Well, let's ask uh, our Lord and Savior, ChatGBT. Did, <laughs> let's see what this says. Did RAF kill themselves? <laughs> let's see what it says. Did Raf kill themselves? I don't know if it's going to get what I'm saying. Okay. The, the question is not clear. Did so it right the Red Army faction or West German? Faction kill themselves. Oh, I got it is still a matter of debate and controversy as to whether the deaths were actually suicides or whether they were murdered by the authorities, as some people believe that the government have played a role in their deaths. However, it is generally accepted that the members of the RAF who died in prison did so by their own hands. I don't know. I'm un, I'm unconvinced. I read quite a few reports that suggest otherwise, but I don't know. Mine Up says to you guys. Yes, members of the Red Army faction, also known as Bider Meinhof Group, did commit suicide. Mm, so this maybe. one makes no notion of of uh, the the foul play. I don't know. It sounds like they are probably murdered. I don't buy it. Whenever convenient murders happen like that, like uh, better off that they die. Um, yeah, you always kind of think that they were suicided. And that's the end. Yeah. And that's unfortunately, well, I mean, I guess they were terror groups and they were violent. So you meet the end that you make. But um, yeah, that's what happens when you resort to terrorism. You're probably going to die. Yep. You're going to get, you're, you're most likely going to get murdered, killed by the state. Right. So don't do it. Is this a good time to mention that we don't endorse any political violence? I think that's nope. the perfect time. Yep. So yep. bro history does not endorse political violence. And um, of any if kind, you, if you get into that, you're most likely going to die. Right. So um, to end this episode, that's the moral of this three part series in the Red Army faction. Don't do <laughs> yeah. political violence. I asked a couple of questions about how you could help our podcast. And the number one way to help our podcast right now is filling out that survey monkey survey. It's in the show notes. 
You got to just choose bro history when you're going through the questionnaire. You can win $500, well, Amazon dollars, but that's worth something, right? Yeah. Probably buy everything on Amazon anyway. Right. Um, I asked our Lord and Savior, Chat GBT, filling out a survey monkey. Well, I asked the question, will filling out a survey monkey survey make you more attractive? And it said, filling out a survey monkey survey is unlikely to directly make you more attractive as a physical appearance and personality traits tend to be the primary factors that influence one's level of attractiveness. However, completing a survey could potentially make you more appealing to the survey sender. Fair enough. Particularly you will be if they hot are gathering our feedback. <laughs> so, <laughs> you heard it. Um, so, fill out the survey monkey survey it is very helpful for this show's growth it's imperative for this show's growth and you may win five hundred dollars in amazon dollars anything else that likes five hundred dollars survey monkey survey no nah. <laughs> okay and make sure your feedback's positive i'm joking right. be honest and just fill out your accurate demographic information it will help us it will help us sell you items. <laughs> um, okay, let's wrap this up. Um, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Bro History. It is the number one way to support our show. You can also rate and review the podcast and join us on Patreon. That is another way to support our show. But fill out that survey, monkey survey. All right, uh, I'm going to stop before you guys hate me. Should we wrap this one up for good? Yeah, man. All right, peace. Peace.